Acts chapter 2 is where we find ourselves today. And if you haven't been with us these last few weeks, then allow me to bring you up to speed real quick on just where we're at, how we've gotten here, and what we've seen. Just a few highlights up to this point. So today is the fourth and final sermon in our Easter series titled, Behold, which of course comes from John the Baptist's statement in declaring the identity of Christ in John chapter 1 of, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. And in this series, we've been focused on three things. And I've repeated these three things to us week to week, just so we can kind of know where we're at, what we're doing, where we're going, how the Lord is leading us through His Word. And number one, we spent two weeks, the first two weeks of this series, leading up to Resurrection Sunday, focusing on preparing our hearts. That was number one, prepare. And so for this purpose, we looked at John's statement in John chapter one, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there we saw the significance of that statement and how it still resonates with us today. And how there we saw that Jesus' Jesus's identity as the Lamb of God informs our identity, our purpose, and our message as the people of God. And then we moved to John chapter 3, where we saw the Pharisee, Nicodemus, coming to Jesus, both physically dark as the time of day, but also in how he came in a spiritually dark place. And in that conversation, Nicodemus came face to face with a few realities, that in order to see the kingdom of God, it didn't matter how many Uh, how many Old Testament promises he memorized, how many laws he had memorized, uh, how he upheld those things or sought to zealously defend those things with his life, but that what Jesus told him is that what matters is if your sins have been atoned for, if you have been born again. And so this is what, of course, caused a rub with Nicodemus and Jesus. And, and Jesus pointed to Moses lifting up the snake in the wilderness and how the people had to focus their eyes on the reality of their sin and the very thing that was tormenting them. And Jesus said, just as Moses lifted the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so there we saw the same for us, that as we fix our eyes on the cross, and see he who was crucified, the slaughtered lamb of God on our behalf for our sins and looked at our sin held on that cross. It's then that we can be saved and be born again. And so in doing, we have then the spirit of God blow through the caverns of our stony heart and be born again, giving us a new heart, not of stone, but of flesh. And then finally, last week, we set our focus on celebrating. So we set out first to prepare, so prepare ourselves for Resurrection Sunday and prepare ourselves to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And so that's what we did. We celebrated last week the resurrection and Christ's atonement for our sin. And how we saw in John 5, where we saw how both the crucifixion and the resurrection were God's plan for the Son. And then we took ourselves to the empty tomb. There in John 20, we saw how the resurrection compels us to hold fast to God's word. And we saw how the resurrection anchors our peace and compels us 
to bear witness. And it's that final point from last week that compels us to bear witness. That's what I really want to continue to drill down into this morning and to really focus on as we'll see how the resurrection prepares, empowers, and emboldens us to bear witness. And so far in this series, our main text has been in John's gospel. As we've moved through the gospel of John and and seen these different moments of, of significance Today, we'll shift gears and turn our attention to Acts. And there, my aim for us is to see a few ways in which we are to savor the resurrection, as this is our third and final part of this series. So we, we're preparing our hearts. We celebrated in joy the resurrection of Christ. And now, I want us to see how we are called to savor the resurrection and all that Christ has accomplished for us there. And we'll do so in two main ways. First, we'll do so by seeing how the resurrection equips us to bear witness. And then we'll see how the resurrection prepares us. There we'll also see what the resurrection prepares us for. So one of the things I've been pointing out to us in my introductions in this series is how the world, specifically in our Western culture, is increasingly and adamantly opposed to the message and the principles of the gospel. And it is increasingly clear that their opposition has led them to exchange the truths of God for a lie. And that lies that they've exchanged the truths of God for the truths of one another's hearts. We see this in our culture everywhere, to speak your own truth, to respect the truths of others as they try to create and concoct a happiness and a peace within themselves. Each man seeking to support the feelings and the inklings and the wishes and the desires of the other, creating what is to us such a clear contradiction of cognitive dissonance in the hearts of man. And this is why we must obey our Lord's command to go. This is why we must command our Lord's obey to go. And this is why we must prepare ourselves by clinging to the testimony of the resurrection. What we are going to see this morning is that through the resurrection, Jesus not only inspires us to find new life in him, but he equips us with everything necessary for living that new life in him. So I'll ask you to stand in in honor of the reading of God's word. Once again, as we're in Acts chapter 2, verse 29. This is Peter speaking. It says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let's pray. God, we 
praise you this morning for your word. We praise you for what you have accomplished for us, both in the cross and the empty tomb. And we pray that you would help us as we examine your word this morning to allow your word to examine our hearts so that we can see how savoring the resurrection, celebrating the resurrection daily through the way we live our life is the imperative which you give us and is the model for which you have called your church to walk in. So God, please don't let us leave this place the same. But let us leave this place empowered and emboldened to walk missionally for your gospel. And we know that that will be for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So, just to set the scene for us real quick, Jesus here, looking at the words of Peter here, just to set those scene for us, Jesus has died and he's been resurrected and he's appeared to his disciples and to over 500 people to this point. And we see, if you'll kind of look, glance back there to Acts chapter 1. You shouldn't have to turn too far, but Acts chapter 1 there, and you'll see Acts 1.8. This is Luke's gospel's account of the Great Commission. And we read there, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But I mean, let's look at that in its full context. So really start there in verse 6 of chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, him being Jesus here, because Jesus is still with them, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What a question. I mean, do do you see the, the moment that we're in right here? Knowing everything that we know about all that Jesus has taught, all that Jesus has shown, and how Jesus has has been crucified, resurrected, has appeared to them, has been teaching them. He's even gone through God's word with them to this point. And here the question that they ask, you notice the plural there, that is it's, it's the group, it's the collective. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still don't get it. They still don't get it. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So notice the, the type of power that Jesus is talking about and the type of power that they're asking or looking for is is a national identity power. But Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So not you will be my conquerors, my army that will take back the kingdom, an earthly kingdom for Israel, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now, we're all familiar with this passage. If you join us on Wednesday nights, we went over this passage uh, just a couple of Wednesday nights back uh, briefly before we went and prayer walked, getting ready for our Easter egg hunt at Yates Park. But we know the significance, most of us, of the different 
areas in which Jesus has just mentioned. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So we know Jerusalem is where they were, so you'll be my witnesses where you are. And then we know that Judea is where most of them are from. We know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. It's where they've been ministering, and that's just kind of the region just outside of Jerusalem in that localized area. And then we see Samaria, so we know that that's even further out. And then we look to the ends of the earth, and that one's obviously, you know, everywhere else. Kind of the all-encompassing blanket. But there's more significance there for these places that Jesus points out to them in the Acts 1-8 version of the Great Commission. First, he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So that's where they are. This is literally days removed from them killing Jesus. And him being resurrected. And so he's saying, first, you're going to be my witnesses where they hate you. And where they hate the message that I've given you. And where they hate me. And they hate you because they hate me. And then he tells them, so Jerusalem and Judea. First, the, the, that first area. And then he says, and you'll be my witnesses in Samaria. So first, you're going to be my witnesses where they hate you. And then you're going to be my witnesses where you hate them. Because we know the, the cultural significance. We've heard it in Sunday school many times, right? The, that, that the Jews hated the Samaritans because they, they looked down upon them as a mixed race. And the Samaritans hated the Jews because of their disdain for them. And so there are this, these two culture groups that clash constantly. So much so that if a Jew had to go through Samaria, they would make a wide swath around the town to go to a different place. And so Jesus here is saying, you're going to be my witnesses where they hate you so that at the cost of your own life, just as it costs me, and then you're going to be my witnesses where you hate them. So this is not a kingdom that is made simply of one nationality, but you're going to the ends of the earth for this message that I've given you. And so following this, we see as we continue reading verse 9. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. I mean, so that's pretty incredible things happening right here. Some, some uh, otherworldly, some heavenly things going on right here. So when he said these things, they're looking on, he was lifted up. So this is the ascension and he's taken away and a cloud took him out of their sight. And so they're just standing there watching, right? In verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So in other words, he's coming back and he's just given you a command to do something. So when he comes back, you better be prepared to answer for the responsibility that you've been given. And that responsibility is to be his witnesses. So following this, they promptly go to a house and they gather in an upper room and where Peter takes charge of the group just as Jesus had set forth that you, your name is Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church. And he leads them, Peter leads them in formally replacing Judas as an apostle. 
Now remember, as we just read, even to this point, they're still trying to process everything that has happened to them, everything that they've seen, everything that has happened to Jesus, and everything that Jesus has taught them. And then in Acts 2, we see here the day of Pentecost. They're once again gathered all in one place, and suddenly a mighty wind fills the house, just as we see throughout the Bible Wind and God's Spirit are essentially synonymous with one another. We covered that last week. But here, God's Spirit and the wind are literally synonymous. Because a a wind fills the house, and so do these tongues of fire. And we read that in this moment, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in other languages. I mean, this is quite an incredible scene. They go from watching the resurrected Christ ascend to heaven, being convicted and challenged by a couple of angels like why are you just staring there he told you what you're supposed to be doing and so then they go from that to now gathering trying to to figure things out replace one of the group that's missing because of Judas's betrayal and then you continue to try and figure out what to do next and as you're gathered boom A wind rushes through the house that you're in tongues of fire fill the room and you're speaking in other languages And then we read that there were people there who were gathered from every nation at this point in Jerusalem. And these people are outside and they're hearing and understanding what these disciples are saying. And then we, we read that some who heard believed what they were seeing and hearing. So some initially believed the gospel right away. But others mocked them saying that they must be drunk with wine. And Peter pleads with them, it's only nine o'clock. We're not, we're not drunk with wine, right? And so that's what brings us to the context for today's passage. Because upon hearing their mocking, Peter begins to stand up, or he stands up, and he begins to powerfully preach and boldly preach the entire gospel of Christ from God's word. And that's where we're focused this morning because this event of the filling of the Holy Spirit brings us to our first point this morning. If you're following along on your outline, hopefully you picked one up as you came in. If not, that's okay. You can take notes on a piece of paper, type it out on your phone, however you're copying down what we're looking at this morning. But our first point is the resurrection equips us with his life-giving spirit. So what was it that Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. This is John 3, 8. Or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. So consider for a moment everything that is happening here to this group. They have now been born of the Spirit, literally just days earlier after hearing everything that Jesus taught them in his ministry, after seeing him crucified for their sins, after seeing him bodily resurrected, being taught by him in his resurrection, and then they they dared to ask, is now when you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? And so, just as with Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, the Spirit of God blew over the bones. We, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. The Spirit of God blew over the bones and brought them to life. So now, with the disciples, the Spirit of God is blowing over them just as Jesus told them that he would pour out his Spirit. Just as Jesus told them in Acts that you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
And the resurrection equips us with the life-giving spirit because it is only by the spirit of God blowing through our hearts, illuminating our understanding, and moving us to repentance that we can be born again. But again, the wind blows where it wishes. So it is God's will that drives all of this. And so let us thank God for giving us his life-giving spirit, that our eyes may be open to see and believe his good word and repent of our old life. You see, God's spirit is active today through his word. So as we read his word, as we study his word, as we hide his word within our hearts, as we declare the truths of his word in song and we hear his word preached, the spirit moves our hearts. And the resurrection of Jesus is the seal of approval. The resurrection of Jesus is our justification. It equips us with his life-giving spirit. And he is our helper. The spirit is our helper and our guide. And he speaks through, to us through the word of God. And so what happens next as, as these people are hearing this and uh, some believe, some others mock, Peter begins to stand and declare God's word. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 14. So we're back, back in chapter 2 and verse 14. This is Peter. But Peter, standing with the 11, so they're all gathered here because this happened right there all at the same time. They're standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he points them to God's word. Peter begins to point them to God's word and walk through God's word, preaching the gospel. And at this moment, as the crowd is questioning, what does this mean? This is when, as we just read, Peter stands up, filled with the Holy Spirit, raises his voice and begins to preach Christ and him crucified. But not only does he do that, as you notice, Peter does exactly what Jesus had done with them only just days before by pointing, Peter is pointing the crowd to God's word. But only days before, we see in Luke 24 that Jesus led the disciples through the word. He led those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He, he showed them, starting with Moses and all the prophets, he showed them everything concerning himself in God's word. And then as he gathered with the disciples, he revealed to them himself in God's word once again. And so now Peter is simply doing what he learned from Jesus. As now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now he knows. Now he gets it. And so he's preaching what he's heard preached. He's bearing witness to what he has witnessed. And so he begins with the promises of God. And he starts with the prophet Joel there. And again, if you'll recall where we left off last week, Jesus told the disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And that comes with many implications. So just as I bore witness and testified to the glory of the Father, so you too now are sent to bear witness to the glory of the Father. Just as I was lifted on the cross, so you too must come and die. Just as I was raised from the grave, so you too will find true life in me. 
And just as I was sent into the darkness to be the light, so now I send you to shine the light of the gospel. And so Peter, here in Acts, filled with the Holy Spirit, is acting on the very boldness and power that Jesus has inspired in him and equipped him to do. Just as we saw the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, respond when Jesus left their presence after he had led them through his word, they respond with saying, were not our hearts burning within us as he explained the scriptures? As Jesus explained the scriptures to them and as Jesus explained the scriptures to the disciples, we saw them respond by those disciples rushed back to their community of faith. And then we see Jesus do the same thing for all the disciples. And here we see Peter responding to his change of heart by boldly standing and proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And this is where I want to point out our next point this morning is that the resurrection equips us with a new You see, for these disciples, it was the literal experience of the resurrection. They saw it themselves. But as God's plan shows us in his word that it wasn't his plan for all of us who believe in him to see his resurrection, but for him to reveal himself to these chosen few that they might then bear witness and testify to the resurrection, that they might make it known. And so for them, it was the experience of the resurrection. For us, it is the testimony of the resurrection. And so I bring this point up because before we can follow God in heartfelt obedience to his word and to his call, we must have a supernatural heart transplant. But we can't make that happen on our own. The wind blows where it wishes. So it is with the Spirit of God. So as the Spirit blows through our stony hearts and illuminates our understanding, we then are given new hearts and we are born again. Now consider this, and don't miss this. Where was Peter the last time we saw him in this story before this? Well, we go back to, to John 20, and we or even before that, we see him, he's, he's gathered with the disciples trying to discuss before Jesus presents himself to the disciples. And then before that, he's, he's rushing to the tomb to see if Mary Magdalene's report about Jesus' body has been taken to see if her report is correct. And there, John makes sure that we understand that he got to the tomb first. But... Where did we see Peter before that? Before rushing to the empty tomb. In John 18, we see Peter denying Jesus for a third time. After adamantly defending himself, saying that he would never. But this is what Jesus said. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter denies that he even knew who Jesus was. And in Luke's gospel account, in Luke twenty-two sixty-two, 62, we are given a little insight into the countenance of Peter's heart after denying Jesus three times. Where we read, Luke twenty-two sixty-two, we read, and he went out and wept bitterly. So what has happened in Peter's life that's brought him from weeping bitterly to boldly and powerfully declaring the gospel? What changed in there? 
that he would go from denying Jesus and bitterly weeping to boldly proclaiming the gospel to the very same crowd that killed Jesus or in the very same city where they had just killed Jesus. What could make a man go from shameful denial and bitter weeping at seeing your sins lifted on a cross and put on the shoulders of your Savior? Seeing the resurrected Christ. So having the Spirit blow through the caverns of his heart and being born again fully equipped with a new heart, now Peter boldly stands here in Acts 2. A very different man than who we saw in John 18. And what was it? It was a supernatural act of God. And this is exactly what happens in our hearts when we hear the testimony to this gospel, to this good news. If you're here this morning as a believer, then there is a reason that God's word being preached and God's word being taught and God's word being sung resonates such great emotion inside of us. And it's because you're regenerate. And he's equipped you with his spirit. He's equipped you with a new heart so that his word is like a fire in your bones as we see in Jeremiah. But if you're here this morning and you feel nothing when God's word is preached or taught or sung, then I challenge you to consider whether you're sitting with a heart of stone. Now this brings us to our next point this morning because he doesn't just equip us with his spirit and a new heart that we may simply sit still and enjoy it. No, we don't savor the resurrection by staying put. We don't savor the resurrection by checking an attendance block every Sunday. That might be good and that might be an overflow of a heart that has been impacted by the resurrection But look at verse 29 of chapter 2, as we read earlier. Verse 29. So Peter, speaking again, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. So he's linking Jesus as the promise of the fulfillment to David. That he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. The greatest that is looked upon of the Jewish faith being David. Peter's like, he's dead. I can take you to his tomb. In verse 30, being therefore a prophet, still referring to David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So Peter's saying that God promised David that he would put a man on the throne of Israel from his line forever. And so knowing this, verse 31 He foresaw and spoke, this is that he there is still David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he is not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So that's from Psalm 16. We looked at that last week, Psalm 16, 10. And then we see this in verse 32 as we keep reading. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Notice that Peter's message doesn't just center on Christ and him crucified. Rather, on Christ and him crucified for our atonement and resurrected for our justification. See, the resurrection is central to the gospel message. When we preach the cross, 
without the empty grave, we leave a hole in our gospel. And what was it that Jesus preached to Nicodemus that gave him pause? You must be born again. The resurrection guarantees our resurrection so that we may walk in the light of the gospel. And as we live on mission to tell the world that they must be born again and that they can be born again through, by grace, through faith in the resurrected, crucified Christ. Because of what has been accomplished in and through Christ crucified and resurrected. So this is what boldly Peter is standing on. That not only was Jesus the Lamb of God that was slain, that paid the price in an atonement for our sin, but Peter says, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. See, the resurrection equips us with his life-giving spirit and a new heart so that we can be equipped to live missionally. That's our next point, to live missionally. Notice again what Peter says in verse 32. Witnesses. The Greek word there is martyres. What was it that Jesus commanded that they would be in Acts 1.8? You will be my witnesses. Martyres. That is where we get the root word for martyr. See, this is God's design for believers. This is God's design for the church that we are constantly bearing witness, constantly testifying to how the resurrected Christ has radically taken our heart of stone, given us a heart of flesh, and resurrected us. And to do so vocally and boldly, which brings us to our next point, which is that the resurrection equips us to go in boldness and power. And this is exactly what Peter is doing in this moment. He's speaking with boldness and power, not in his own authority, not in his own boldness and power, but in the boldness and power that he has seen and experienced and that was bought for him by Christ. Remember, the other disciples are standing there too. They're apart. So I'm sure they're kind of standing there just kind of in shock of hearing all of this come from Peter. I kind of imagine that they're maybe hyping him up a little bit, but they, they knew of his denial. They knew of Peter's denial. They knew of his shortcomings, but they also knew of his calling, that he would be the one to lead and build the church. And so Peter here is speaking not in his own boldness, power, or authority, but in the power and authority of Christ. And this is what happens when we boldly walk according to the Spirit. Because look at what happens. Skip down to verse 36. Verse 36, we read this. So Peter continues that connection with, with David. See how David has not ascended and, and that he will make all your enemies a footstool. And we see this in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So that's quite the bold statement. But he's living with the exact power and boldness that Jesus told him. At first, you'll go, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem where they hate you. And so he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. 
Verse 37, we keep reading. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So this is the group that didn't believe when they heard these disciples speaking in their own language. Because we heard that there was a group that heard and saw and believed what they were seeing and hearing. And then we're told that the group, there's a group there that began to mock. And that's the group who Peter begins to boldly preach to. And now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So who does the calling? God. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So he begins to call them to holy living, not according to upholding laws or commands, but through submitting to the work of Christ on the cross. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You see, we too often leave off two key parts of the Great Commission when we quote it. We typically begin, if we quote the Great Commission, go therefore, and we'll end with teaching them all that I have commanded you, right? Or if you're quoting the Acts 1-8 version, is we'll just simply end with, you will be my witnesses, or begin with be my witnesses. Excuse me. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, right? Because, I mean, we're giving quotes or a soundbite, something to fit on a T-shirt or on a poster or, you know, what have you. But when we do this, we leave off the most assuring and emboldening and empowering parts of Jesus' call to missions. Matthew 28, 16. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Or, as we read at the beginning, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth has commissioned us to go in his name, has promised us that he is with us always in the person of the Holy Spirit, and given us power through his Holy Spirit. And I know you've heard me give this challenge before, but let's just keep track here. He's given us a new heart, a purpose to live on mission, and he's given us the very message that we're to deliver and has promised us power through the presence of himself. So tell me, church, what do we lack for walking in obedience? Nothing. We are fully equipped to walk as he has called us to. Now notice also the response of the crowd there in verse 37. Again, as Peter continues to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel, we see that in verse 37, they are cut to the heart and they declare, brothers, what shall we do? And Luke is obviously trying to get the message across. The author, Luke here of, of Acts, 
that there was undeniable change in the lives of those whom Jesus taught. We've seen undeniable change in the life of Peter go from denying Jesus and weeping bitterly to now boldly proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And now, even here in this short moment, as he's proclaimed the truth of the gospel, we've seen heart change in the lives of those who he's preaching to. They go from mocking to being cut to the heart. And so without changed hearts, we are just like the nation of Israel. Israel was tasked with the same mission and purpose, to take the land that the Lord had provided and reflect God's character that all the surrounding nations may know and realize the one true God. But what happened? They repeatedly showed that they could not follow the Lord in heartfelt obedience. But that was just the point, was that they couldn't do it, that they needed to submit to him. And their inability to keep the law was supposed to reveal their need for God's grace to change their hearts. Instead, it drove them to further self-reliance and greater disobedience, which then gave God greater glory in Christ. See, thus the coming Messiah was the one that would change the hearts, as we saw in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You see, the hearts of these disciples changed by the grace of God. And that is what unites them, meaning it is also what unites us. We're not united necessarily by common ideals or backgrounds or status, but we're united by God's grace to us in the cross and his power that he has given us through his resurrection. And this is the very thing that Jesus is revealing to the disciples in the moments following his resurrection. Now the question which, of course, this brings up is, Well, why do we need boldness? Why do we need power? And the answer provided in God's word is because we go as the sheep of his pasture into a world full of wolves. And so for this, I'll point us again to the words of Peter, but not here in Acts. I'll ask you to turn to 1 Peter, chapter 1. Now, I had the privilege of hearing this, uh, a portion of 1 Peter 1 preached by one of my absolute favorite preachers, that is John Piper, at our conference this last week. And I'll tell you, if you ever want to be humbled, have a section of scripture picked out, thinking you have a good understanding of it, and then sit in front of John Piper and have him preach it to you, and you'll be humbled very fast. So, yeah, he preached a different portion of this text, but... 1 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So notice the the strong language and bonds of gospel through the blood of Christ that are being held on to here and the sanctification of the Spirit and the foreknowledge of God the Father. Grace and peace multiplied to you. So we keep reading. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead secures our living hope. But we continue reading. Verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Uh, Notice how strong this inheritance is that we have. Notice that this is untouchable. It's, it cannot perish. It cannot be defiled. It cannot fade away. And where is it kept? Not here on earth where rust and moth destroy, but it is kept in heaven for you. Verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The resurrection prepares us to endure suffering. The resurrection prepares us to endure suffering. We see this in Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Peter saw for himself Christ lifted on a tree, paying the price for the very shame that he was standing in in that moment. Just as Nicodemus, too, saw Christ lifted for the sins of the world. But that in and of himself was not what spurred him to go in boldness and to preach with authority, nor endure suffering, him being Peter there. What was it that inspired Peter to go in boldness, to stand firmly, to have no fear in preaching Christ in the face of those who hated him? He saw the resurrected Christ and responded to the resurrected Christ. Just as we saw there in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And all of this is founded in that statement there in verse 3. The living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we too are called to hear the testimony of the resurrected Christ in his word, or through his church, and respond to the resurrected Christ, knowing that we can endure whatever trial may come our way. Because if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But we don't stop there. How are we called to endure suffering? How are we called to do that? Is it by just holding tight to our faith, by just reading our Bibles more? Is it just by more church attendance? Is that like, how are we called to endure suffering? 
Is it to just sit by and know that we'll attain to a resurrection like his and so we take everything as it comes? Obviously not. Hopefully that was, hopefully you knew that's where I was going with that. But 1 Peter 1, skip down to verse 13. How are we called to endure suffering? Therefore, that's the, the big Bible word, which means you go back and see what it's there for. Well, we've just read that first part. We know what it's there for. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. How are we called to endure suffering? We're called to endure suffering in holiness. Which is our final point for this morning. And so may we not become so lethargic in enjoying God's grace that we forget what God's grace is supposed to produce in us. And that is holy living. We spread God's glory. We live missionally. We savor the resurrection by pursuing holiness. And we savor the resurrection by living in light of the resurrection. I want to close real quick. If you'll put the title slide for the PowerPoint, please. So when I created that little logo there at the bottom and I, I sent it to some of my ministry friends and uh, they said, you know, they liked it, but one of them commented, well, shouldn't the arrows be, you know, the first one be pointing down and the second one be pointing up? Because, you know, they're thinking it's, it's Easter. It's telling, you know, the story of Jesus that he came down the incarnation, that he was crucified, resurrected for us, and then ascended to the Father. And I was like, yes, but I'm not wanting this logo to detail necessarily the story of Christ, but how the story of Christ compels us then to live in light of the resurrection. And so that's why the arrows are not pointed down and up, but straight across. Because the, as we've seen over these last four weeks, the, the resurrection of Christ and him being the atoning sacrifice lamb of God compels us then to then walk in obedience to the cross ourselves crucify ourselves, die to our old way of life, and that if we attain to a death like his, we will certainly attain to a resurrection like his and walk in newness of life and therefore go in newness of life, declaring and bearing witness to his resurrection. And that is what I want to leave us with. We savor the resurrection by living in light of the resurrection. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the resurrection and everything that it secured for us in our justification. And so as those who have been regenerated, as those who've had your spirit blow through the caverns of our heart and give us a heart, take our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh, help us to respond accordingly, to walk in obedience, to pursue holiness, to bear witness to the resurrection and how it's impacted our life. And God, I also pray for anyone who's here, may be sitting here with a heart of stone, that you, through the preaching of your word, through the singing of your word, will have blown your spirit through their hearts, given them a new heart, and that they would respond accordingly.
And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.